right, welcome to day 254 on our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapters 27 and 28, and 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. Okay, so um, chapter 27 of Isaiah uh, kind of helps to orient ourselves by just looking at the last two verses of 26 that we looked at yesterday. So uh, the, a big theme that we, that we, of course, have been seeing in Isaiah is this coming time of calamity and the judgment of God, and that on the other side of this judgment, God will bring about a great redemption for his people and establish the rule of the messianic king forever. So here we have, come my people, enter into your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until fury has passed by. For behold, Yahweh is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Um, and that is, I think, kind of connected to these fir- this first verse in chapter 27, which otherwise um, is a, is, feels a little bit out of place in chapter 27. In that day, Yahweh, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So we've met Leviathan several times in our readings so far. We've seen him in Psalm 74, 14, which uh, is a verse that kind of puts to rest the idea that this is some kind of earthly creature that we know about, um, like a dinosaur or something, right? Because he has multiple heads. Um, And then Psalm 104, verse 26, uh, has also mentioned him, uh, and we saw him twice in Job 3, verse 8. And 40 verse 25. And this is actually a very uh, telling verse. So, um, as to like what's going on here, um, in Hebrew, it, it, the name is pronounced Livyathan. And, um, and interestingly, uh, this line, or at least some of the elements of it, seem to be taken directly from the Baal cycle. That is a, um, a mythic. Um, poetic account, um, uh, an epic that is uh, that teaches us or purports to teach us about the deity whom the Bible knows as Baal. Uh, this is uh, this is was found in the city of Ugarit, which um, went out of uh, was kind of like a abandoned slash destroyed um, uh, during uh, the the final years of the. Uh, the, the Bronze Age, so right before Israel's like um, cropping up, we find this there. And interestingly there, um, Baal is being uh, spoken to by one of his great nemeses, the, the god Motu, and uh, which is uh, a god, the, the, the Semitic word for death is Mot. So it's like a god of death, you can maybe think of it as, think of him as. And it talks about how when you smite Lotan, and there the spelling is very similar to how what we would have. In fact, it, it's more or less identical to what we would see with Leviathan in the Hebrew Bible. And then, but it doesn't only use the name; it calls it uh, the fleeing serpent. And notice here we have this same expression: the Bariach Nachash, uh, the fleeing serpent. Um, when you finish off the twisting serpent, and there again the same thing, the akalaton nachash, um, and so 
and, and then it and then it calls it the close coiling one with seven heads. And again, remember that in Psalm seventy four fourteen, this thing has seven heads. And so, the idea here is that Isaiah is using language that is even. Uh, maybe even lifted directly from this or something like it, a source like it, language that is kind of stock ancient Near Eastern language, to speak about this great mythical creature whom a powerful deity um, smites, and applying that to God. And there I noted that, you know, this is obviously poetic language. I don't think this commits us to saying that there really is a seven-headed Leviathan, Um the enemy whom God defeats can be described in any number of ways, right? In um, uh, personified evil. In Revelation, Satan is described as a dragon, right? A red dragon. You've got a beast from the, from the sea coming up and all kinds of things like that. You've got beasts with seven heads. And here I think you have that kind of language creeping into Isaiah as well to vividly portray God's victory over uh, this intimidating, a seemingly un undefeatable enemy. Um, here, note that he is called the dragon that is in the sea, at least that's how the English Standard Version translated it. That word there um, is tanin, which um, occurs in Genesis one twenty one to describe the, the great sea monsters or creatures, so like big things, uh, sharks, whales, uh, maybe the giant squid, <laughs> um, you know, these great uh, cre mysterious creatures that swim in the sea. Um, interestingly, it can also just simply be referring to like a serpentine kind of thing. Like this is this is also the word uh, like in Exodus 7, 9, where Moses throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent there, it turns into a tanin. And that, that, of course, is what the magicians of Egypt turn their staffs into as well. So, yeah, so that's that. And I think that's the imagery that starts chapter 27 of Isaiah. Just thought I'd take a little bit of extra time to explain it, because it is kind of an interesting thing. But so, the, but the idea here, of course, is that, that this uh, looks forward to the day when the enemy of God's people is defeated, the final enemy, um, and and the, the coming peace that Isaiah has been telling us about is established. Um, and then note how 27 then begins riffing on the song of the vineyard from chapter 5. Remember, I will sing a, a song, um, the, a song of the vineyard of my beloved, right? And here we have the pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Uh, now there, of course, it was like, I went and looked for good grapes, and all I found there was wild grapes, like this vineyard stinks, and I, I have to basically, uh, it's a do-over, I got to get rid of it. Here, it's uh, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, celebrate it. I, Yahweh, am its keeper, every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day, I have no wrath. Okay, so this vineyard now, which was um, basically a loss in chapter five, now this vineyard will be uh, a success. It will be. It will flourish, um, and and in the in the vineyard, um, uh, right back in chapter five, verse six, it had thorns and briars in it, right? And that was a problem. This uncared for vineyard that was just overgrown with thor quote unquote thorns and briars. Um, and indeed, this is an imagery that Isaiah likes to use. He uses it three times in chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. Um, again, talk, talking about like um, just how the land is, is ruined and, um, and uh, it's desolate, and so thorns and briars grow all over the place. Um, 
Uh, we also see this in 9.18 and in 10.17, but here now there's no thorns and briars. Uh, but here I think the imagery is like God is, is looking for some stuff to burn up, but there's nothing left, right? It's good. Um, if, if there were, of course, I would march against them. I would burn them up together, but rather this is a time of peace. So let them make shalom with me. Let them make shalom with me. In, in that day, in days to come, God says, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Um, so here we see this blessing of the Messianic kingdom extending once again to all nations. Uh, but then, of course, in typical Isaiah fashion, we are back to a description of the judgment that is coming. Um, but it's got it's got a little bit of comfort there, right? So like this is a reality, but it's not he's not finally going to wipe them out. There is hope for them, unlike a lot of these other nations that he's been proclaiming judgment on. So it begins, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? So think, for example, of the oracles that we've seen against Assyria and against the future enemy, Babylon, right? Like these are nations that will not rise again. They're just going to be all that they're destined to be, like with Babylon, a haunt for jackals, right? Uh, that the, the way in which is that in which God has struck his people is severe, but it's not something that's permanent. They, they will rise again, and they will be more glorious. And, and furthermore, the judgment that they're going to be facing, which is exile, okay, so measure by measure by exile, you contended with them. Um, he removed them with his fierce breath in, in the day of the east wind. Um, this is, is a, a purifying judgment, as we've seen. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the fruit of the removal of his sin. So here, atonement being used in a very interesting way. Of course, atonement, the key idea is kind of washing or purifying. Um, so this is like punishment that brings purifying. And indeed, we've already seen the word atone used in this way as a, as a punishment that will purify the people. So Isaiah 27 verse 9, surely this transgression uh, will not be atoned for until you die. So that's that's one way of bringing atonement, of, of cleansing, of purification. And here, what does that look like? It's the judgment first on these objects of worship. He makes the stone all the stones of the altars like like chalk stones that have been crushed. Um, there's no ashram or incense altars remaining standing. The fortified city is now alone. Uh, its habitation is deserted and forsaken like the wilderness there. And here we have the, the animals again used as a symbol like Isaiah often does of desolation. The calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. The trees are all bare, right? All they're good for is the women coming around, collecting sticks and making fire from them. Uh, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. And then in verse 12, once again, we're back to this future hope. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, Yahweh will thresh out the grain. And this, this idea of threshing will become uh, uh, picked up again later in today's passage. Um, but, you know, what's between the Euphrates and the brook of Egypt? Israel, of course, right? And they will be gleaned one by one, so kind of picked off of the, the, 
of, of the vines, right? Um, and and brought in to, to the harvest of the Lord. And this will be signaled, it says, by the sound of a great trumpet that is being blown. And of course, this isn't a, like a Dizzy Gillespie trumpet. This is um, this is a shofar, like a horn, a ram's horn. Um, and uh, it will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, right, those who are in exile, and those who, who were driven out to the land of Egypt. Okay, Egypt was a place that uh, some Judeans chose to take refuge in those days. Um, they will come back and they will worship Yahweh on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Notice the new Exodus theme here once again picked up. I think it's also um, possible that this might be a passage that in, in, uh, informs Paul's use of the imagery of a trumpet, both in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, where the, de- the trumpet um, blasts and then the dead are raised imperishable, or in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord will descend um, and the dead in Christ will rise. So notice here we have the coming of the Christ to the earth to reign, and of course the idea of resurrection, which we've already seen is something that Isaiah um, has incorporated into the mix of the future messianic kingdom. And it's interesting, I think, that both those passages of Paul that speak of the trumpet blast um, are connected to the idea of resurrection. And so here we also have now grouped into this concept uh, the return from exile. So a return, uh, an, an ultimate return from exile, we might say, for a permanent dwelling in peace in the in the land. Um, okay, now verse 20, chapter 28 rather, um, is interesting in that it seems to rewind the clock a little bit, right? We've looked as far forward um, as the Babylonian exile, but now we're back to a place where Ephraim is still standing. So this is this is prior to 722, um, but it seems to be talking about how it is in its final years. And here, the leaders of Ephraim are described as as the drunkards of Ephraim. Uh, so the, and they have a, a proud crown. So the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, right? So this kingdom that was once just so impressive, um, all these houses of ivory, um, you know, much more wealth than than the kingdom of Judah. Um, it's it's now in its final stages of collapse. Um, it's on the uh, so it's it, and it's addressing the crown, right? Like the 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 symbol of its of its opulence, the symbol of its power, um, the crown of the drunkards, the the which is in fact a fading flower. Um, which is on the head of the rich valley of those, again, overcome with wine. And so drinking is a prominent thing here, right? That, not to say, again, that, that uh, as I've said in the past, not to say that alcohol consumption is just summarily dismissed in the Bible as something that is always evil, but of course, it all, it, it's very, you know, complex. Like, it could be a sign of great joy and celebration, but oftentimes, as we know, with alcohol, it goes too far and becomes a cup of staggering, becomes a shameful thing, a destructive thing, and it can also be a symbol of, like, uh, of wealth that is gained as a result of oppression. While others suffer, you're drinking wine. So, um, the the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, and here it's hard to see in this anything than a reference to the coming Assyrian army. 
uh, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his crown with his hand. And then speaking of that proud crown on the drunkards of Ephraim, they will be trotted underfoot. And the fate and then the fading flower, right? It's of its glorious beauty on the head of that rich valley. It's going to be like a first ripe fig before the summer. And what does that mean? Well, when you when you go out and you look, you see that first ripe fig, you're like, "Ooh, figs are back in season." You pick it off the plant and you eat it. And that's what um, the coming invaders will will do to um, to Israel, to the northern kingdom. In that day, uh, Yahweh of hosts will be a crown of glory. So this this shameful crown, this fading crown. Um, now we, here we have a permanent crown, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So you people who are being judged for your sin, like this is the end of the line for you. Um, but something even better will be given to those who remain faithful to the Lord. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment um, uh, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So he will equip those who have to be in charge of the people who are charged with care, with justice, with protection. Uh, and then picking up this idea of wine again and drunkenness, these also reel with wine, they stagger with strong drink. And who are these? Well, the priest and the prophet, those who should be leading the people in religious stuff, right, in the knowledge of Yahweh, and they're drunk too. And here in this kind of the twist of the metaphor, the drink will swallow them. They are swallowed by the wine. Um, I'm reminded here of a thing that uh, that uh, is sometimes said about people who struggle with drinking, like what that's like, um, and it's kind of like a proverb, right? Um, the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, the drink takes the man, and I think that's insightful about how it can get over, um, uh, how we can overdo it with with alcohol, and here. Here, of course, alcohol is symbolizing more than just alcohol, but it, it is part of that as well, right? So this thing that they were using to celebrate and, haha, we're fine, we're good, we're rich, we, we don't have to worry. Now that, that very, the very things that caused them to have that attitude are going to be causing them to stagger now. They reel in vision, they stumble in giving judgment, the, right? The prophet and the priest, they, they're, they're unable to, to, give, um, to give anything worthwhile. And here is another one of Isaiah's gross images. It's definitely up there with the uh, the, the 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 bed of maggots and blanket of worms. <laughs> but here, all all tables are full of filthy vomit. Okay, so they've been drinking, and so you know what comes after a lot of drinking, a lot of puking. So these guys have just like ralphed all over the tables to the extent where there's no space left. Like you can't even put something down; it's just covered with puke. Um, yeah, I hope you're not having lunch right now. Um, <laughs> to whom will he teach knowledge, right? Who is left for, for, for those who, who might hear um, the, uh, the word of God? Uh, to whom will he explain the message? Because everybody who should have been listening, they've been busy getting drunk. Um, uh, so who is left? Young children. And indeed, right, it's the coming generations who will experience the return from exile, um, so those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the death, from the breast. And then we get it as some, uh, some interesting verses about like how the people who are in rebellion against God have been hearing, hear the word of God, 
Okay. Like people who hear God's word, but it's just like nonsense to them. And I love the way it says it in Hebrew. So in English, it's for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Okay. Uh, Hebrew, it's way more like concise and catchy. So in Hebrew, the way you say it is tsav latsav, kav lakav, za'er sham. Okay. And I, I think this is the way of saying um, that it's basically what it sounds like to rebellious Israel. So every time Isaiah comes around uh, preaching his message, blah, 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 blah. Here come more precepts upon precepts, more lines upon line. Here is, add a little bit more here, add a little bit more, just in one ear, out the other. That's what they hear when they hear Isaiah coming to preach to them. Um, and then God is like, all right, you know what? You, um, you, this sounds like nonsense to you. How about some real nonsense? Because a people of strange lips with a foreign tongue are going to be speaking to you pretty soon, um, right? Like, which is essentially, I think, God's way of saying, if you don't understand Hebrew, then let's try Assyrian, because they're the ones who are going to be speaking to you. And and maybe that itself, that judgment, those consequences, may, maybe those will get across to you. Uh, because I've been coming to you, giving you a message of judgment, yes, but also one for the one who turns to the Lord, rest, rest to the weary. This is repose, but you would not hear it. And so then the word of Yahweh will be to you, tsav l'tsav, kav l'kav, se'er sham, and you will go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Okay, and, and all this is directed against those who have been, you know, making fun of, essentially, of the Word of God. And so, um, verse 14, therefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers, right? You who are scoffing, you who rule this people in Jerusalem, who don't want to hear what Isaiah has to say and what the other prophets have to say. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. Okay, so I don't think there that that is... Um, you know, they're literally saying that. I think, I think, you know, the thing that you're committed to is something that's going to lead to your death, I think is essentially the meaning there. And, and um, you know, because another thing they're said to say in the next verse, right, is we have made lies our, shelter, our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter, right? So it's not as if, like, this is some cult of the dead or something that they've decided to opt for. No, it's, 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 uh, this is essentially what where their lot is cast, what they are committed to, um, and and they because they feel like they're they they don't feel like they're vulnerable. They feel secure. Um, they they're the ones who say when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. But therefore, says Lord Yahweh, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone. Um, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. What by, what does he mean here? Well, I think we, it is. This is the house of David. Okay, and um, uh, a house of David founded on the law of uh, on the law of God, founded on His word, founded on His promises, and directed towards what He is doing in the world. And uh, and even though you know that the house of David itself is against this now. Uh, it is the Lord who is directing history, and he will not let that thwart his plan to redeem all of humanity. And um, uh, so this stone here is is set in Zion. It is secure here, 
and whoever believes, it says, will not be in haste. Now, as you might be aware, this is used in two places in the New Testament. So in Romans 9.33 by Paul and 1 Peter 2.6 by Peter, uh, this is, passage is cited, and it's clear that it is referring to Christ as the, the cornerstone. And it's, it's not hard to see how this would be drawn from this in Isaiah, right? That, that permanent thing that, like, uh, nails down the promises of God, the, the foundation of the promises of God um, that is found in Jerusalem, the seat of the Davidic dynasty, right? Like, that's what it means. Now, in the New Testament, uh, both, of, both Paul and Peter follow the wording of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament on this verse, which has the, um, the pronoun him. So who, the one who believes in him will not be put to shame, literally, is what the Greek of the Septuagint says there. The Hebrew doesn't have that. Uh, the English Standard Version actually inserts that here. It's just whoever believes will not be put to shame. But I think the meaning is pretty much the same thing, right? Like, the one who trusts in the Lord will not be, and it says, in haste. So, like, the other big difference here with the, the Hebrew is that the Hebrew says, in haste, whereas the Greek, both in the Septuagint and the New, New Testament, has, will not be put to shame. Um, and I think it, that's just because the Hebrew is a little bit, like, like that's a weird thing to say, right? Will not be in haste. But um, but I think that, you know, certainly the idea is, um, you can see it if you think about it a little bit, like what Isaiah is communicating here, right? Like that you will have peace. You're not going to be like, um, uh, experience like the the terror, the anxiety, the um, the haste that that um, that those coming under God's judgment will will feel. Uh, I think this is uh, related to the verse we read a few days ago, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And here, the one who believes in, in the Lord and in his promises and in the one who is set as a cornerstone in Zion is the one who will not be in haste. So I think that's the idea there. I think that accounts for the differences. The ideas are basically the same. Um, but the Greek puts it in a little bit more of an accessible way of saying than the Hebrew does. Um, God will make justice the line, so the standard will be what, you know, true righteousness, true justice, uh, righteousness as the plumb line. Uh, the, the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, the waters will overwhelm the shelter. Um, then your covenant with death, this covenant with death that you've established, will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand, right? He will cancel this, this wicked rebellion that you are uh, dead set on when the overwhelming scourge passes through, right? That, that overwhelming whip that you thought wasn't going to pass through your land, when it hap does actually happen, it is happening, and when it does, um, then all this nonsense that you're engaged in will be gone. You will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. Morning by morning, it will pass through, day and night. So not only is it coming, but it will be relentless. Notice here, right? Like the the op the, the the what could be described as the haste, right? Um, it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Oh my gosh, this is what we've been making fun of this whole time. Um, uh, the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, right? There's no comfort, no rest. The covering is too narrow to wrap yourself in. A bed too small, a cover, right? You can't cover yourself up. You can't lie down. And then the the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perazim. Um, this is a reference to 2 Samuel 5, this victory that David won over the Philistines by God's help, 
right? And the as in the Valley of Gibeon, they it will be roused. Uh, he will be roused. That that's a reference to Joshua ten, the day the sun stood still. And both those times, it was God fighting on behalf of Israel against her enemies. But now here, as God fought in this extraordinary, miraculous way against. Uh, for Israel and against their enemies, now it will be directed against Judah itself, against those who have made the covenant with death. Um, uh, and to you, like the idea that God would ever deign to judge you, that he would ever uh, that he would ever uh, decide this against you, this is his deed, his strange deed, his work, his alien work. So do not scoff. Stop scoffing at the word of God, lest your bonds be made strong. For I've heard a de- decree of destruction from Lord Yahweh of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention, hear my speech. And then you have this uh, agricultural imagery brought in. Uh, so um, first, God is the one who planted you, right? And, and But that season doesn't last forever. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? No. Does he continually open and harrow the ground? No, eventually he's done and it's time to go on to the next step. So the next step, when he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. God teaches him, right? He's a, a good farmer, but a good farmer knows that there's different phases, just like there's different phases with you, right? Like the bringing you into the land, the establishing you in the land, than the raising up a king for you, and all this stuff that we've been through, you think that's just going to go on forever? Uh, dill, and then, but then what is coming is, a time, is this time of judgment that Isaiah has been talking about, which elsewhere in Isaiah has been described as a time of what? A time of threshing, a time of winnowing, where the chaff is separated from the wheat. Um, think, for example, of chapter 21, verse 10, um, uh, Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, right? Like co- like comfort to the people once they've been through this. So dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel ruled, uh, rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? Yes, he does. But again, this phase does not last forever either. So as these other things, like the the goodness that does not last forever because judgment is coming, so the judgment does not last forever because goodness is coming. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it, right? It's not completely gone. Uh, this also comes from Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. All right, now let's go over to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 10. So here is Paul boasting in his weakness, giving them an idea of what a true apostle looks like. And remember yesterday, he's like, I, I, I don't want to do this, but I kind of have to, right? And so that's like the attitude he, he has here. Notice like his rhetoric, right? He's doing so, but he's doing so re- reluctantly. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing gained by it. Um, and if I must do that, I'm going to tell you something that I haven't told lots of people, Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, so these guys think that they know what's up. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so what we get next is Paul relating to us a vision that he had. And he doesn't really even tell us much about the content of the vision, presumably here, because as he says, 
Um, he he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. Right, and it's like it's hard. To, like you can't even imagine by ne- by its very essence, you can't even imagine what the things were that he experienced here. But as great as this vision that he had was, there's a lot here too that, to say that to show that Paul. Is, has been quiet about this. So number one, he says, it happened 14 years ago. And since then, I've been pretty silent about it, right? We don't hear about it in Acts. We don't, in fact, 14 years ago puts this puts this vision around 43 AD. That's, you know, uh, uh, before a lot of what Paul does in the book of Acts. Um, and, um, and, and, and he's not even going to talk about himself in the first person. He's like, I know a guy, wink, wink, right? And it's like, okay, tell me about your quote-unquote friend, Paul. Um, so, like, that's how hum- he's trying to be humble, but he's trying to also tell them about this. He the, he wants them to know about it, to know that you know he has um, he has a connection with God and with God's will and and with the gospel that others do not have, but he's also not proud of it. It's not like a matter of personal pride, as if it's because he's awesome that God showed these things to him. So he's walking this line between telling them this because he thinks it'll be to their benefit, but also being very humble. So I know a man in Christ, I know a guy who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, some uh, a lot of people have made a lot about this, trying to be very specific about like biblical cosmology, like there's this heaven and then this heaven and this heaven. Um, I think what this is, I think what's going on here is this is the way that we know at least some, if not a lot, of rabbis would have spoken of the highest degree of heaven that there is. And this expression appears to have been taken from the prayer of Solomon at the ordination, not the ordination, at the consecration or dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.27, where he says, heaven and highest of heavens cannot contain you, Lord. The expression in Hebrew is actually pretty cool. It's hashamayim ushmei hashamayim, <laughs> the heaven and the highest of heavens. And so there are various rabbinical uh, teachers who, who used that term then to speak of the third heaven as like that's the place where God actually is. You also have this term used in Deuteronomy 10:14, uh, 2 Chronicles 2:6, 2, 2 Chronicles 6:18, and Nehemiah 9:6. So he he went to where God is. And he doesn't know whether it was bodily or if he was like having an out-of-body experience that God gave to him. He said, I, I don't even know. And I can't even really tell you what I heard, what I experienced there. Man may not utter these things. And um, and on behalf of that man, I can boast, right? I can boast. Have these guys experienced stuff like that? But then notice he, he turns away from that, right? He says, you know, because that's not the essence of my boasting. That's not what I want to boast about. I want to boast in my weaknesses. Um, because, again, those are the things that—it's not this ecstatic— spiritual experience that I had that qualifies me to be an apostle of Christ. It is my, the fact that I have seen the Lord, it is the fact that he personally appointed me to be his apostle, and it is now lived out in my life of suffering, on my life of following the Lord and bearing on my body the marks of Jesus. So he says, if, if, um, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, like, 
dwell on this, okay? Because um, the things that really equip me is the fact that I'm a jar of clay and the fact that in, in, in this jar of clay, I, um, I have this, this treasure, this treasure that is the gospel. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> God has done things in my life, Paul tells them, to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me from get puffing my head up. And maybe that's part of, of God allowing and bringing all this suffering into Paul's life. And in particularly, he mentions uh, something that God gave him to prevent him from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations he was having, what he calls his thorn in the flesh. And he doesn't say a lot about it, at least in terms of like what it is. What he says about it is that, A, it was a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited, which I think is interesting. It's one of these passages where we see God using even Satan's intentions, right? Because it's not Satan's final intention with some kind of thorn in Paul's flesh is not to keep him from being conceited. If anything, Satan wants him conceited. So it's God using something that Satan brought to him uh, for his own purposes to keep Paul humble, to keep him humble. And, um, you know, we can speculate a lot on what this exactly is. As I said, Paul doesn't tell us what it is. I don't think it's a sin struggle, um, like, um, you know, because he, he, does, he does say that he boasts in his weakness— uh, like, for example, here in verse 10, 9, he says this, um, and if that is linked to the thorn in the flesh, it doesn't sound like he'd be boasting about some sin struggle he has. Um, it's probably some kind of physical ailment, and um, pretty much anyone's guess is as good as anyone else's. I have heard that, um, uh, uh, I, I think I remember Scott Haifman put, proposed this idea, that it may have been terrible headaches that Paul suffered from. And um, a clue to this is actually something he says in Galatians 4.15, where he's speaking of their love for him, and he says something very odd there. He says, I can attest that if you could have, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, of course, it's a little speculative, but it's possible that what he's talking about there is this intense pain that he experienced from migraines or something. Um, you know, just kind of putting that out there as a possibility. I'm not saying that it is this or it isn't, but the purpose is, the, the thing is, is that Paul sees this weakness, this thing that buffeted him, uh, that, um, that made, that caused a real struggle for him. And he didn't just say like, oh, oh, this isn't, um, this, this doesn't belong in my life. I shouldn't be struggling. I'm God's apostle. No, he actually see, sees this incredible hardship that was given to him. And he says, God is, God, God's given this to me. And as unpleasant it is, as it is, in a sense, it's a gift. And if nothing else, I can say it's a gift to stop me from becoming conceited, because indeed it has. And this is at least one thing that I can see that the Lord is doing with this hardship in my life. Um, I pled to the Lord to take it from me. Three times I did. Um, but, he, but then a revelation that he did give me that I can utter is that he told me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so, Paul says, this too is something I will boast about. God has given me to make me more like Christ, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me, right? Because that's where God's power is perfected, in our weakness. For, for the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because when I am weak, that is when I am strong. All right, everybody, thank you for being with me. As always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.